0: Good morning, folks. You're all very welcome to our service this morning. And especially if you're a visitor this morning, you're especially welcome. And we'd like to invite you to uh, stay behind for a cup of tea or coffee after the service so we can get to know you a bit better. I want to read you a few verses from Romans 8 this morning. And this is taken from the message. So, what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We are sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. I wanted to read that at the start of our service today because I think we really need to hear it. At home group on Wednesday night, we were writing out the list of prayer requests, and it was a long list, a long list of our brothers and sisters in the congregation here who are going through severe trials. At times like these, it can be easy for doubts to creep in. We can forget that we are resurrection people because it doesn't feel like it. So right at the outset this morning, I want us to remind ourselves that Jesus has won the victory. And no matter how things may seem, his love is unswerving and unfailing. We're going to sing a couple of songs now. And these are Easter songs, resurrection songs. So in spite of all the suffering that's coming to our door, let's rejoice this morning and remind each other that Jesus is indeed our risen Lord. So although we're thin on the ground this morning, let's raise the roof off this place. Let's come to God now in prayer. Let's pray. Father, bless us with a deep sense of your presence this morning. That we may be at peace and worship you with our bodies, minds, and spirits. Great God, who is like you. The heavens are yours. The earth is yours. You formed this planet. Through the stars into space, shaping the universe and loving it steadfastly forever. We approach you humbly, for you are the maker and lover of all creatures. Open our minds to hear your word as the scripture is read and to encounter you in our worship this day. And now, in the quietness, we ask your forgiveness for all of our flaws, faults, and failings. Lord, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secret is hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts through your Holy Spirit, so we may perfectly love you and sing your praise through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from John chapter 2. You'll find that on page 1065 of the Pew Bibles. John chapter 2 and reading from verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is the word of the Lord.
1: My young friends want to come to the front and bring your Bible because you'll need it. It has all the answers to my questions today. what, where, when, why. So as we look at the story that David has just read, I need your help to figure out the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why of the story. So let's start with who. Who is the main actor in the story? Uh, Jesus. Jesus. It's always nice when Jesus is the actual answer to the question. Jesus. And what? What What is Jesus doing? in this passage. Okay, yeah, so he comes into the temple and he clears them out, he says, don't sell that stuff. Yeah, so he uh, clears the, I'm gonna say the sellers of the temple. And can someone describe to me Like an adjective. What adjective would you use for for Jesus in this passage? Adjective. Is he really happy? He's angry. He's really upset. Yeah. So we're going to put upset or angry. Okay. And did anyone catch where this happened? Um, was it any particular place in Jerusalem?
0: The temple.
1: The temple. And when? This is, you're reading really closely. If you caught, when? When did this happen? Yes, you can use your Bible to find the answer. Yes. The Passover festival. Yes, really good listener. During the Passover festival. And why? Why was, did you pick up why Jesus was upset? Patience, 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 Why? Because we're using the temple, like, for a marketplace. Ah, so he says the temple should not be a marketplace. Okay, so it's a temple, um, and he describes it as, the temple is his father's house, and he says th- that my father's house should not be a market. Then what is its purpose? What is it supposed to be? Well done. Yes, it's supposed to be a place where people come and pray or worship, and who are they <laughs> worshiping? God, yes, and he says it's his father's house. What do you do in a house? You live there, yes, and when you live in your house, do people ever come to visit you? Yes, Yes. Yes. so if it's his father's house, it's a place where God lives and he meets with his people. Now there are some stories that are in one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and there are some that are in two, There are some that are even in three, but there are only a few select stories that are in all four Gospels, and this is one of them. So if you put your finger on that page and you flip back to Luke chapter 19, which is page 1054, 1054, right at the bottom, Luke records for us one of the purposes of the temple, which Gabrielle has shared with us. Right there at the bottom. He says, Uh, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So once again, what did Jesus say the purpose of the temple was? House of prayer. Yes. Jesus is actually quoting. Did you find it? Yeah. Jesus is quoting the book of Isaiah when he says that the temple will be a house of prayer. But what is prayer? Like we throw that word around a lot, but what actually is prayer? Yes. Worshiping to God. Okay. Worshiping to God. Yes. Talking Talking to God. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, prayer is, I like to think of it as communicating with God. So certainly, we talk to God. Sometimes we talk out loud, and sometimes we talk to him in our heads. Sometimes we do it alone, or sometimes we do it in a big group, like we just did. Sometimes we put our prayers to music, and we sing songs. Uh, The entire book of Psalms is like a prayer book that is is put to music. But we're communicating right now. I'm talking. What are you doing? Listening. Oh, and you were speaking, so what was I doing? I was listening. Listening is also a part of prayer. What are some ways that we can listen to God? That was a much harder question. Reading the Bible. We can read the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we read the Bible, but we're actually actively thinking about it in the context of what's going on in our life. And we might talk to other people, like our parents, about what we're reading and how it maybe um, stands out to you something and how it impacts your life. Did I see another hand? No. Okay, so, yeah, there's another way. So sometimes we read the Bible. But there's something else we do in church um, where we listen to what the Bible has to say because people teach us about what the Bible is saying, um, whether it's from here or when you're upstairs in Sunday Special. So when we talk about what's in the Bible, we also get to hear God's voice as he teaches us what's in his word. Now in today's passage, Jesus was upset because the temple was being used as a marketplace instead of a place where people could communicate with him but that actual temple is completely destroyed today. There's only one wall, and it's only part of it that's left. So where is is God's house today? Okay, in heaven, what else? Us. Us, hmm. In this church. Okay, any other answers? Okay, so we've got quite a few. So we have God is in heaven, and certainly he sits on the throne. And um, we have, God is in this church. And if I walked out on the street today and I asked someone to define the word church, what do you think they would say? Yes. Like it's just like a house or something? Sort of, yeah. And what happens in that house? You just go there to sing songs and pray and it's like a whole scripture. Really. Mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> And what do those people call themselves? Christians. 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 So it's a place where Christians meet and they might sing some songs or read the Bible. And the, you know what? Even the Oxford Dictionary would agree with them, that it's a, it's a building where people meet. But there's something really cool about um, in the Bible. The word church never refers to a physical building. It never refers to a physical building. Like Mateus said, it refers to groups of people who follow Jesus. And so I want you to come quickly up here. Come, 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 come. We're all going to face this way. Come, 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 come. There's plenty of space. Plenty of space. Okay? And I want you to look out at all of these people. Make super awkward eye contact with some of them. Wave at Ezekiel. No one else is going to wave at Ezekiel? There we go. Wave at Ezekiel. Okay. This, this is the church that Adelaide wrote. And look around up here. This is the church. Why? Because the spirit of Jesus, God himself, is in every person who follows him. Cool. He resides in us. I know, it is so cool. And so we are the church. And what was the purpose of God's house? So if we're God's house, we are God's house, what did Jesus say part of our purpose was? Mm-hmm. And he specifically called us a house of? A house of prayer. All right. Um, yes, and worship is definitely part of prayer. We are created to communicate with God. And so that's what we're gonna do right now. We are going to enjoy a relationship with him where we can talk to him, and where we can listen to him. So, let's talk to God. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for creating us to have a relationship with you. Thank you for listening to us and speaking to us when we pray. As we sing to you this morning, may our musical prayers glorify you, and open our ears to hear you speaking to us each and every day. This we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 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 So, the music group is going to lead us in a musical prayer now. So if you return to your seat.
0: Okay, you guys, you can head out to Sunday special now. And just while the kids are leaving us, if you'd like to turn to your church news and diary. Two things that we haven't got in the church news and diary, so I'll just cover them first before I forget. (laughs) Next Sunday, uh, Sam will be back with us, and next Sunday will be a communion, so just make a note of that, please. And after the service today, would all committee members please meet up on the second floor about 10 minutes after the service finishes? We'll let you go and grab a coffee first, and then we'll meet up there for a short meeting. There will be prayer ministry at the front here, beside the organ. So if you have anything that you would like prayed for, please do come forward and meet with the people there, and they will pray for you. Sam's back in harness tomorrow, so if you have any issues, you can just ring him. Uh, let me see now. Yes, uh, Saturday, the 18th of May, the welcome committee is organising a fun day for the whole church. And we're going to go to Greystones, to Hillside Evangelical Church. So it's a, a good chance for us all to get together to just have a bit of time to relax and get to know each other better. You can see there that there'll be a barbecue. And uh, the various costs are listed there. So uh, also, if uh, you could provide tray bags, I'm sure that'll uh, keep everybody happy if there's plenty of tray bags. And uh, please let Tommy know if you're going to go because we really need to know numbers for catering purposes. So I'd encourage you all to come along to that. Our last international cafe will take place next Friday, the last one for this term. So if you're an international student here this morning, please do come along on uh, next Friday at 7.30. And because it's the last one, we're gonna have a barbecue then too. So you'll be very welcome to come to that. I think the rest of the notices have been in for a while, so I'll let you read those at your leisure. Now, we're going to sing again, and we're going to sing in the words of Speak, O Lord. This morning's reading is a story that's always fascinated me. Among the stories about the life of Jesus, this one stands out. We see a different Jesus here from the gentle Jesus meek and mild we might be familiar with from old Sunday school pictures. We see instead an angry, even a violent Jesus, And maybe we're not quite sure how to reconcile that with the image of the sacrificial lamb going to his execution without saying a word. I can't say that I've found any of the sermons that I've heard in this passage that convincing. But I heard Tom Wright talking about it. And what he had to say made sense to me so I hope at least some of that sense will come across in what I have to say this morning. Just before Easter, our news programs were taken over by the tragic pictures of Notre Dame Cathedral on fire. It was sad to watch the destruction of one of the world's most iconic buildings. However. I was fascinated to watch the outpouring of grief that this disaster provoked. It was absolutely extraordinary. People crying their eyes out, and within hours it seemed that the world's billionaires were queuing up to pledge untold millions for the restoration of Notre Dame. And then in contrast to that, The subsequent massacre of hundreds of Christians celebrating Easter in Sri Lanka failed to attract the same level of coverage or indeed interest from the world's media. So why so much angst over an old building? I think it mostly revolves around identity. Notre Dame is probably only second to the Eiffel Tower as a symbol of Paris. It's featured in so many stories and films, not to mention postcards, that it's hard to visualize Paris without Notre Dame. It seemed to be a permanent fixture. It would always be there, forever a part of the Parisian landscape something that was erected for the worship of God. But sadly, in what is probably the most secular country in Europe, it has about as much spiritual significance now as Disneyland. Its only function to attract the tourists and fuel the economy of the Parisian hospitality industry. So where am I going with all of this? Well, the word worldwide grief over the destruction of Notre Dame reminded me of another building whose loss a very long time ago caused total consternation that still affects some people today. I am, of course, talking about the Temple in Jerusalem. The temple was the epicenter and the focus of the national life of Israel. Like Notre Dame. Solomon's temple appeared indestructible throughout generations. The unmissable stop on a visit to the capital, the emblem of their country, a place to marvel at the beauty and meet with God. It would always be there until it wasn't. The effect of this disaster is hard for us to grasp. If you think of the grief that Notre Dame's destruction caused, if you multiply that by a thousand, you might be getting some idea of the anguish that the Israelites felt. If you go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem today, the only part of the temple that still remains, you will see the Jews still lamenting that loss the disappearance of their nation's spiritual heart, thousands of years after the event. And that's why I wanted to take a closer look at the story of the cleansing of the temple, because it directly addresses the way the Jews viewed their spiritual home. At first glance, it appears that Jesus' anger is provoked by the commercialization of the temple courts. But there's a lot more going on in this story than just a protest against the sale of sacrificial animals in the temple. You see, throughout his ministry, which was quite brief, just about three years, Jesus was doing things which had a particular meaning in the world of his day. When he announced to an individual on the street, your sins are forgiven he was giving that person the kind of assurance of God's forgiveness which they normally would have got by going to the temple. Someone who wanted their sins forgiven would go to the temple bringing a sacrifice. They would go through the standard ritual and then have a great party, a great feast to celebrate God's goodness and forgiveness. In contrast to that, Jesus was saying right here, your sins are forgiven. And they had the party right there. Who did Jesus think he was? What was he doing? If you think about it, Jesus was taking upon himself the authority and the power which up to that point had resided solely in the temple. And as Tom Wright says, it would be like somebody in our culture offering to issue you with a passport or a driver's license right there on the street, something that we all know only the passport office or the National Driver License Service has the authority to do. So any of Jesus' contemporaries would have realized straight away that he was doing things which were kind of upstaging the temple, and his whole public career was like that. Now, before somebody jumps all over me, there is one exception which we need to note, that when he cleansed some lepers on one occasion, he said, go and show yourself to the priest and make the offering. And the reason Jesus did that was quite clear. If the leper had gone back to his village and said, I met some wandering prophet who tells me I'm clean, they would have said, oh, yeah, sorry, mate, but that's not how it works the healed leper had to go to the temple in order to get the official clean bill of health to be accepted back into his family and his community. Without that official clearance, he would have to remain an outcast. But then, as they say, it's the exception that proves the rule. Usually, Jesus just made a pronouncement, and that was that. End of story. So quite clearly, Jesus seems to have believed that it was his vocation throughout his ministry, not only at the end, to embody a kind of radical alternative to the temple. So when he arrived in Jerusalem, there he was and there was the temple, but who was representing the will of God in the coming kingdom? Not only that, but in Judaism at the time, All was not sweetness and light. There was quite a bit of dissent and critique of the temple, not only from the groups like the Essenes, but a lot of the poor people too, felt that the temple was an oppressive structure which the high priests ran to their own advantage. Now it's noticeable that Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of the time, records that at the start of the war in A.D. 66, the first thing the rebels did when they got hold of the temple was to burn the records of debt. That would be like somebody going into the central bank here and blowing up the computer that's got all the overdrafts on it. So clearly a lot of people weren't too keen on the temple. However, In his actions in our story today, Jesus is going beyond all of that, and he's saying that God is now doing something new, which is making this temple system redundant. Now, why does his action mean that? As with many things in John's gospel, there are layers upon layers of meaning in the signs that Jesus gave of who he was and what he was doing. The cleansing of the temple is one of the signs which John puts right at the beginning of his account of the good news. He picked several amazing things that Jesus did at various times in his ministry, and he put them at the beginning by way of introduction, like a director of a movie who puts some major event in the opening scene and then goes back to tell the story which makes sense of it. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see that the cleansing of the temple actually occurred in the last week of Jesus' life, just after he'd entered Jerusalem in a strange sort of triumphal procession, which we remember on Palm Sunday. So why has John stuck it in at the beginning? John picked out this event and put it up front for good reason because it was a sign of what the gospel was all about. You can get some idea of what John was doing when you look at the other signs grouped at the beginning of his gospel. They all have to do with new things taking the place of the old. So just before the cleansing of the temple, we have the wedding at Cana when Jesus turned water into wine demonstrating that the wine of the New Age, to celebrate the coming of the kingdom of God, has now replaced the water used for ritual washing, which had been stored in those same water jars. The old Jewish rite of purification to make oneself acceptable to God was no longer relevant because he was here among them. The Messiah had come. It really was time to celebrate. A similar new beginning, literally being born again, is the point of the discussion with Nicodemus, which follows the cleansing of the temple. And then comes the conversation with the woman at the well, signifying a new set of relationships, which included women. The offer of living water, marking a new beginning when the worship of God in spirit and in truth would replace the old worship in the temple. So that then begs the question of what was new in the cleansing of the temple. Turning over the tables of the money changers would have stopped for a few minutes, maybe half an hour, an hour or so. The flow of sacrificial animals which were coming in and being bought And it would appear that Jesus is protesting against the commerce that was being conducted in God's house. But consider this. There was a very good reason why you had to buy the animals there. Say you brought a sheep from Galilee. If it got injured on the way down, you would have to go all the way back for another one because it wouldn't be pure anymore. To be acceptable, a sacrifice had to be free of any defects. So it made sense to have sacrificial animals for sale on the premises, to ensure that they were fit for purpose when you brought them to the priest. For that reason, it seems unlikely that the cleansing of the temple was just a protest against commercialization. The sacrificial system depended on a guaranteed supply of defect-free animals. It seems more likely that what Jesus did was a way of symbolically stopping the regular sacrificial process. And what that says is this whole system is under judgment. And one day before too long, the system will stop completely because the temple will be destroyed. If you look in Mark's Gospel, chapters 11, 12, and 13 give us more insight into exactly what's happening here. The cleansing of the temple appears in chapter 11, immediately after the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree, which had no fruit. The barren fig tree symbolized the unfruitfulness of the temple system, and Jesus' cursing of it is a foretaste of the judgment his cleansing of the temple implies. The significance of Jesus' actions wasn't lost in the powers that be, because Mark tells us that when the chief priests and teachers of the law heard what Jesus had done in the temple, they began looking for a way to kill him. Now, if Jesus had just been protesting at the commercialization of the temple, it would hardly have merited the death penalty. Now, I think the extreme reaction of the religious leaders shows us that they recognized that Jesus was directly challenging the whole temple system. And so, by extension, was a threat to their very existence. Mark completes the picture of judgment by telling us that the very next day, as Jesus and his disciples are walking along, they pass by the fig tree that Jesus cursed. And we're told that it was withered from the roots, a clear indication that despite the apparent success of the religious leaders' plot to kill Jesus, their attempt to ensure the survival of the unfruitful temple system was doomed to failure. This whole power struggle between the religious leaders and Jesus is brought into sharper focus after the withered fig tree because Mark goes on to tell us that the chief priests and teachers of the law demanded to know by what authority Jesus is doing what he's doing. However, Jesus refuses to tell them implying that their authority is gone. Then in Mark 12, we get the parable of the tenants. Do you remember that story? Where the owner rents out his vineyard to some farmers and then goes off on a journey. At harvest time, he sends a servant to collect his share of the harvest, but the tenants beat him up. He sends another, but they kill him. And so on until, in desperation, he sends his only son, thinking, Surely they'll respect my son. But they kill him too. Then the owner kills those tenants and gives the vineyard to others. It wasn't difficult for the religious leaders to see that in the parable, the vineyard was Israel and they were the evil tenants. They were incensed at that because they saw that Jesus was pointing the finger of judgment at them on the unfruitful temple system. Mark then goes on to record the three attempts by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law to get back at Jesus by trapping him into saying something that they can use against him. But Jesus easily sidesteps their traps and exposes their hypocrisy, indicating that the judgment on the temple system is unavoidable and irrevocable. The disciples clearly got the message because in Mark 13, they asked Jesus, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Notice that it's not if, but when is the temple going to be destroyed? And as we read through those three chapters, we see the relationship between Jesus and the religious leaders slide into open confrontation, and it's apparent that Jesus' fate is sealed. But what is also apparent is that Jesus is saying quite radically, what you have in and through my work is the reality to which the temple pointed. People often say, does this mean the temple was a bad thing? And often historians of religion have said, well, it was kind of an early development. They thought they had to make sacrifices for their sins. But we've grown up now and we know we don't have to do that. So how stupid were they? Jesus never says that. For him, the temple was a true signpost to God's future but it's now ripe for destruction. Not because it was a bad thing that needed to be abolished, but because it was a true signpost to the reality. But you see, when the reality has come, if people insist only looking at the signpost, they've missed the point. The temple had become a distraction, and so it had to go. I have two dogs and I take them for walks in the local park and there are a lot of big trees in that park and in those trees live lots of squirrels, which is very exciting for my dogs. They love to chase these squirrels, even though they haven't a hope of catching them. And quite often as we're walking around the park, I will spot a squirrel up ahead that the dogs haven't seen. But when I try to point out the squirrel to the dogs, instead of looking where I'm pointing, they just look at my finger. And in Jesus' day, the people were doing the exact same thing. They were looking so hard at the temple that they couldn't see that what Jesus was offering was the reality to which the temple pointed. Just like my dogs stare at my finger, and miss seeing the squirrel. Now looking back with hindsight at the Last Supper on the cross, we can see that Jesus was doing the reality to which the temple had been pointing all along. But if we'd been there, we probably would have misunderstood, just like everyone else. We like to think that we're smarter than dogs, but on this evidence I'm not so sure. In fairness, though, in the story, it's not that easy to spot where the new temple that would replace the old one was going to come from. You can see from the other signs that something like that was happening. But what did this new temple look like? It's there, though it's not that obvious. As John says in verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. According to John, when he was asked for a sign, he spoke of his death and resurrection, but again in a way that wasn't obvious. Look at verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Neither did the disciples, nor the others watching, understood at the time. They only realized afterwards, verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. It was only after the resurrection that they understood. He was talking of his own body as the new temple it was easy to misunderstand. Indeed, when we read the account of his trial before the Sanhedrin in Matthew 26, this saying about destroying the temple is brought up in a confused way by the false witnesses. The disciples knew the meaning of the saying after the resurrection, but up until then, nobody had a clue what he was talking about. It was only later that the understanding of his body as the temple of the Holy Spirit developed. For instance, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. The old temple stood for the presence of God and his relationship to his people. The new temple of the body of Christ takes the place of the old temple as the place where God has has his dwelling among human beings. A new relationship, a new covenant now exists between God and his people. But that did not come easily we need to remember that the new body of the resurrection came through the sacrificial death of the one who gave the sign of its coming. It was a new covenant in his blood through the destruction of his living body. In verse 17, when the disciples recalled that verse from Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me they were pointing to one of those passages in which the faithful servant of God is one who suffers. Listen to verses 7 to 9. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my mother's children, for zeal for your house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. It reminds us, and it must have reminded the disciples later, of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who was despised and rejected and bore the sin of many. His zeal for the Lord's house consumed him in the sense that a sacrifice is consumed on the altar. And this one sacrifice of the new covenant replaced the many sacrifices offered repeatedly under the old covenant. We are now promised new life in Christ. Those who are joined with him in the life of the resurrection receive the benefits paid for by his blood, by believing in the suffering servant who died for them and whom God raised up. We look forward to the end when true worship and justice for all will be brought together in the kingdom of God. As in John's vision of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, in which there is no temple. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It would be nice to finish there with those comforting words ringing in our ears. But John doesn't just dish out comfort and revelation. Listen to these words from chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, And have endured hardships for my name. And have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. John doesn't want us to get too comfortable and start to take things for granted. That was the mistake that the temple authorities in Jesus' day made. God's desire for fruitfulness is as strong as ever. If we don't produce the fruit he's looking for, he will come and remove our lampstand from its place. And we could share the same fate as the Jerusalem temple. What John is doing here is retelling the message that he heard when Jesus told the parable of the tenants. We would do well to heed his words. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us to read the stories in the Bible and think that we would not make the mistakes that we see your people making at every turn. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we make those same mistakes every day. We do that because we're fallible human beings. And so we come to you now, admitting our faults and asking for your grace and the help of your spirit to be the faithful and fruitful followers that you desire. For we ask it in the strong name of your Son, Jesus Who died to save us. Amen. We're going to continue to worship God now in our offering. Let's pray now as we bring to God our prayers for others. Father, as members of the Christian family, we pray for the whole Church of Jesus Christ. Make her faithful in your service and generous in love. May we, your people, so live in Christ that we may be his body in the world today. Father, your son remained with his disciples after his resurrection, teaching them to love their neighbors as they loved themselves. As his disciples in this age, we offer our prayers on behalf of the world in which we're privileged to live and we pray for the neighbors with whom we share it. This is the world that you love, and it's the world for which Christ gave his life. Guide its leaders and all who strive for peace and justice. Look in mercy on the powerless, the homeless, the hungry, the vulnerable, and the oppressed. Wherever they are, may we, your servants, be there working in partnership with one another and with you to love and to care in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we pray for our nation. Bless the houses of the Oireachtas. Direct and guide those who govern our country and help them to work for the good of all, not just for the privileged few. Father, we pray for the church, for her work throughout the world, but especially for her work here in Adelaide Road, that in all of our work, your spirit of wisdom and love may guide and inspire your people. Father, we pray especially for those sent out from here, Karen and Ramon in Mexico, and Mervyn and Rayang working with Christian Aid in London. We pray that you will guide and bless their work, enabling them to be a blessing to all whom they meet, and serve. Father, hold in your tender care those of our number whose home and family life has been overshadowed by accident or illness, people undergoing treatment or recovering from surgery, those suffering depression or dementia, and their families who watch and wait with them, and all mourning a loved one's passing. Father, we pray especially for Rebecca this morning. We thank you for the encouraging signs that the family have seen and we humbly ask that in your mercy you will glorify your name by healing Rebecca and restoring her to full health and strength once more. Father, be with Gary and Ruby, Ken, Mary and Ruth, surrounding them in your love and quieting their fears. Father, we pray for Annie too who seems to have been in hospital forever reassure her father, and help her medical team to find a cure that will get her on the road to a full recovery. We thank you that she's been feeling much stronger, and we pray that when she comes out of hospital for two weeks respite next weekend, that she will continue to improve so that she can return to a normal life soon. Father, we pray for Jonathan Mitchell as he undergoes chemo. Help him to cope with the sickness and the exhaustion that comes hand in hand with that. And we pray that his treatment will be effective so that he too will soon be able to return to a normal life. Be with David and Dorothy as they travel back and forth to visit him and help them to cope with the worry and the stress. That's just an unavoidable part of living through this situation. Father, help the rest of us who are fortunate in not having to deal with serious illness, to live our day-to-day lives with thankful hearts. Open our eyes to what you're already doing in the lives of those around us. Open our mouths to talk of you. Open our hearts to show your love. Open our minds to see in the questions asked, opportunities instead of threats, challenges to be faced with a sensitivity to the movement of your Spirit. And as we talk and look and read this week, show us, we pray, your will. Reveal the plans you have for us and give us the courage to work with you to bring those plans to fruition. For we ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. i going to close our service this morning. And the words of O Church Arise. And now we say the grace to each other. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.